Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name is Nathan, and I am here with my co-host, Closet Karen. (laughs) (laughs) Why does it always begin with a C? People who didn't listen a few weeks ago are very confused right now. I am recording from my parents' closet. It is my new recording studio. So we're always doing stuff that starts with a C. I love it. I don't, I don't know why it always works out that way. I don't think I like oh, that nickname. So great. <laughs> Closet Karen. Anyway, hey, we're we're back this week with uh, Dr. Richard Averbeck from TED's talking about the Book of Genesis. You guys enjoy this episode. This week, we are back with Dr. Richard Averbeck, who is a professor of Old Testament and Semitic languages at Trinity Evangelical Divinity What is School? Semitic languages? Dude, <laughs> I know. It's pretty bad when the title of your job is very difficult definition. to understand. <laughs> like, um, yeah. Yeah. he can answer that one for you. <laughs> that's Here, awesome. Uh, that's funny. That's our first question today. <laughs> Help us. (laughs) Yeah, uh, Dr. Averbeck, what is Semitic languages? What are those? Well, Hebrew is a Semitic language. Uh, Arabic is a Semitic language. Those are two modern Semitic languages. But we also have a lot of ancient Semitic languages that are dead languages, like Akkadian and Ugaritic. I teach these languages. We work with this literature in order to understand the world of the Old Testament. And there's... uh, a lot of work that needs to be done in it because the the Bible is written in a context of a larger world, too. So... What I heard is if you're interested in Ugaritic, yeah. Yeah. phone him. I'm or Akkadian, next or Sumerian, <laughs> or... Yeah, People are going, huh? Yeah, I, I'm teaching it, yeah. Yeah, but I would also say, as someone who has studied some old languages myself, not near to the degree that Dick has, but... I would also say that a lot of people hear that, like, hey, you want to go study Ugaritic? It's like, it's probably a lot more accessible than you think it is. So is I would Yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm you one can, of the like, questions. sign up and go take a class. That's wild. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I would just encourage you guys, like, hey, if you are interested in that or you're interested in Old Testament studies or languages, like, go after it. The field is ripe for the harvest. We can hook you up with the right guy. Yeah, yeah. I have uh, I have ten people taking Ugaritic next semester. I love it. Ten. I love it. In the United States. Let's make that up. Let's make that a hundred. <laughs> no, let's do it. Yeah, we have a really broad net with this podcast. <laughs> All right. So today we're going to be talking about Genesis one through eleven. Last week we did an introduction, which is going to help us understand this more specific section of the book today. And so. Help us understand what is going on. Why is Genesis 1 through 11 so very different from 12 to 50? Just give us a little bit of an understanding of what this is. Also, I think this may go down in a list of potentially one of the most misunderstood sections of the Bible. Oh, I thought you were going to say weirdest, but yes. Well, I mean, also that. Anywhere there's Nephilim, that's a little strange. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah, well. but, but I think there's just a lot of confusion around it. So. Agreed. Provide some clarity for us. Well, you know, usually when I start talking about the creation and so on and so forth, um, uh, no matter what you say about this, you're in a lot of trouble with a lot of people. <laughs> that is so <laughs> true. <laughs> so let me do a disclaimer before you start talking, and I would just say, everybody chill out. Yeah, really? Okay, ready, go. And so the, the idea is you're going to get in a lot of trouble anyway, so just do what's honest just and, you know, yeah. dig it as best Love you it. can and try to understand it. Okay. Well, 
there's different parts here to Genesis 1 through 11, but it is different from the patriarchal narratives that come afterwards in Genesis 12 and following because it's taking this generations formula that we talked about last time and using it to shape this part of Genesis 2, Genesis 1 through 11, what we call the primeval narratives. They're before the patriarchs. And it kind of is setting Israel in its larger world context. The goal of Genesis 1 through 11 really is to kind of level the ground of our human experience. Who are we? How did we get here? What's going on? How did we get ourselves into the mess we're in? It's meant to kind of level that out so people have a sense of what the issues are for human existence and life. And that's for everybody in the entire world. And so that's what Genesis 1 through 11 really does in terms of how it contributes to Genesis and, in fact, the whole Bible. So when we come to Genesis 1 to 11, a little bit of what I heard you just say was this is uh, it's primeval, which could also, I think there's a, a sense about that, that Moses is, like we talked about last week, drawing from an oral tradition. What do we know about that tradition? Because on some level, are we talking about something that's prehistory, or how would we categorize what's going on? Well, let me put it this way. Let's start with Abraham. Abraham lived around, say, 2000 BC, mm-hmm. Okay. He's 2,000 years before Christ. We're 2,000 years after Christ. And uh, he lived around that time. Already by that time, the cultures around were very heavily developed. Uh, For example, if you go to Egypt today, you would want to look at the pyramids, the big pyramids. Well, they would have been already hundreds of years old in the time of Abraham. It's the same kind of thing is true in the Mesopotamian Iraq region, very highly developed civilizations into which Abraham was born and lived and so on. So, Yeah, so when you go to Egypt and visit the pyramids, you're looking at a structure that was old for Moses. Yeah, and even <laughs> and even for Abraham. And for Abraham, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just to kind of put things into perspective for people. Yeah, way back into Genesis 12, all those cultures were already very ancient. So what happens is when we look at that material, what's happening in terms of why that's there is that, yeah, the Israelites have their own genealogical history that we've talked about. But they also know that they're part of this larger world. They, I mean, they, they came up out of Egypt. Mm-hmm. They knew Abraham came from Mesopotamia, came from Iraq. Yeah. All of these things were part of their larger world, and they knew a lot about this. So the fact of the matter is, when we get back into this material, we actually have a lot of material we can actually study. I mentioned previously cuneiform, which is, you know, writing on clay tablets from Mesopotamia. Well, this became kind of the primary writing system Mm. for the beginning of writing in the ancient world around 3000 BC. And so this is with clay tablets, uh, what happens if you burn them and bury them? Well, you actually preserve them. Yeah, right. And that's different from, say, papyrus or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, no, it'll, it'll just it'll, disintegrate. Yeah. It'll just disintegrate. Yeah. So, so the idea is to understand that we have thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of these tablets that we've dug up from the time way back then, even before Genesis 12. Hmm. 
So this is very important to understand. We have a lot of data, and some of us work and actually continue to publish in this discussion. And that's true in Egypt, too, with the pyramid texts and all of that. So riffing off of that a little bit, how do those tablets, which would have predated Genesis, the, the writing and compilation of Genesis, how do those tablets help shape our understanding of the stories we find in Genesis 1 to 11? Well, it helps us because it helps us to read the text in the context of the world in which it was written. Mm. So it kind of informs us background now. One of the problems has been that sometimes scholars had tried to impose that material on the biblical text illegitimately. Mm. And therefore, there's been a lot of misunderstanding. But the purpose for reading that material is to acculturate ourselves to the biblical text in its world. And therefore, we can read the text better. It opens up some things. We're a long ways from there geographically, historically, culturally, chronologically. And one of the problems that we have actually today is a lot of people reading our own culture into the Bible. Uh, Totally, yeah. And, And this is a way to get us back to the realities of what the text is getting at in its context. Mm-hmm. Can you give us some examples of what you're talking about? Some of the texts that you're looking at that help you rightly understand Genesis 1 through 11? So, for example, we have uh, creation stories from the ancient Near Eastern world before the time of Moses. And we have some from after the time of Moses, too. But we have these creation stories that tell us how they thought about creation in their world. Mm. And that helps us to see maybe some of the points that are being made in Genesis 1, how we should be understanding them. Not to tell us what Genesis 1 is saying, but to put it in relief, kind of have the background. It's kind of like a a picture. In a picture, you have the foreground, what's the focus, and then you have the background. Well, the background gives context. Mm -hmm. That's what this material is for. The foreground is what the text itself is saying, the biblical text. And so we pay primary attention to that. But we want to make sure we read it in the context in a way that would make sense to what it's really saying. Right. And the problem is we tend sometimes to impose our concerns on it and don't let the concerns that were then arise from the text. So one of the primary ones that I've seen around here a lot and just growing up as an evangelical in the South is that we primarily approach Genesis 1 to 11 in a post-enlightenment, rationalistic, literary, I, I want to use this word carefully, but like uh, literalism, mm-hmm. where what we care about is how did God create the world? And I think what we want to ask you is, do you think that that's what they cared about? What questions were they asking? And how would Genesis have address the questions that they were asking. Well, even to simplify that question, we're asking things like, were the seven days literal 24-hour periods? Like, how? Well, yeah, because we say, of it? somebody says day, and you're like, oh, well, yeah, that's, that's a 24-hour period. You know? Right. Yeah, yeah. So just to clarify. Something. And also, because we come to the text with the question of, how did God do this? Then we are potentially missing actually what, what the, the text might is. be doing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, it's like uh, Lewis said, and I think he was pulling off maybe Aristotle, but it's like, hey, if you want to succeed, you first have to ask the right questions. So what are the right questions? Well, there's several things. First, we have this six, seven pattern, right? Six days and then the seventh, right? Mm-hmm. We know that that's a well-known pattern 
the six seven pattern is a very common pattern in the Bible and the ancient world. Mm -hmm. Just a simple example in Proverbs six verses sixteen and following: have there are six things the Lord hates? Yes, seven. Mm -hmm. Okay, and you'll see this. There's lots of places in the Bible where we have six seven patterns, and for that reason. I think that the six seven thing that goes on in Genesis one is kind of a pre literary type and the Israelites would have known, oh yeah, this is six seven. It's being put in this shape as an understandable story. Mm -hmm. Okay. But it's it's not to be taken that it's trying to tell us that he actually did it in six days. Mm -hmm. It's to be taken as a way of shaping the story for the telling of it that actually would reinforce them living out the Sabbath on the seventh day. Right. So there's there's a lot of that kind of thing that's going on, in my view, uh, in the story. Now, again, for a lot of people, I get in a lot of trouble for saying this, but the fact of the matter is, I think that's what's going on. So in the 6-7, when you look at that, the interesting thing is why the division between 6 and 7? Because that seems to be, at least on some level, essential to the distinction, right? <laughs> you have six yeah, and then uh -huh. a seventh, which should make us wonder, like, why the distinction? And I think the clear answer is because of Sabbath, yeah, which makes us wonder, like, well, maybe that's what is the most important thing about this story. So maybe unpack that a little bit. Like, what is significant about that distinction? What What's going on with the six leading up to the seven? And how does it prop the seven up? Well, I think the... The six leading up to the seven is simply a description of the observable world. Mm -hmm. It's not dealing with evolution and creation issues or anything like that. That was just not on the table. That would have been totally non sequitur to the people of the day. Totally. It's anachronistic for us to apply that. Yeah, it, it, just, it just wasn't what God was going after. Yep. But he is talking about, I think, through the six days where he's saying, you see this? I made it. Yep. You see this? I made it. Mm -hmm. You see this? And it goes on. So what he's doing is he's saying, yes, I am the creator. Mm. I'm the one that made this the way it's supposed to be. And it's very observational. In fact, the three-day sets, you know, the first three days and, the set, and then four through six can mirror each other with the first day there's light, there's the fourth day there's the lights, and so on. Okay, on the second day there's sea and sky, and then the fifth day there's sea and sky animals. On the third day, there's dry land, and on the sixth day, there's dry land, animals, and humankind. He's forming and filling. Yeah, he's forming and he's filling. That's all of how that's understood. Yep. The thing that's important about this, I think, is it's really talking about through the three levels of the universe. Good. Uh, the cosmos that we live in. All of us live in a three-level world, whether there's what's above us, what's below us, and then where we live. Yeah. And whether we think about it that way, that's actually how we see things. And that's organic to the very nature even of our world today and how people live in this world. Mm. And so the idea is to understand that God is just working with the basics here. He's trying to get it clear who he is Good. in the midst of this and that he's done this and he's made it this perfect place this perfect place of what we would call rest. And that's why day seven is the crown to it. Because what do you do on the Sabbath? Well, you've got the work done for the six days, so you stop working. And that's what the word Shabbat means. The word Sabbath means to cease, to stop, because you've completed the work. 
it's all done. So that's why it's all complete. It talks about that in the beginning of chapter two and everything is the way it's supposed to be. So God stops. So it's a perfect nurturing environment for us. Yeah. So interesting that you use the word stop, which like you said, Sabbath to cease, to stop. It's interesting to me that in Genesis 1, right after he creates the man and the woman, he sees everything that he's made and he calls it very good, right? Which is yeah. really interesting. I wish we had time to go into all that, but we don't. But he calls it very good. And then Yahweh ceases, but he gives the man and the woman work to do. So like uh, sometimes I've, and correct me if I'm wrong, but sometimes I've used the analogy of a computer, if you go to an Apple factory somewhere or, you know, Microsoft or something like that, and you go and you watch people build a computer, then they're working to build the computer. But at some point, all of the parts are assembled. You have the keyboard, the screen, the hardware is all put together. The software is installed. You have a power source. You have all these things. And then they sell the computer, right? So they Shabbat, they cease from working. But the thing that they've created is not really complete until it's doing what it's supposed to be doing. It's functioning the way that it's supposed to. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Because it's interesting, like, if Yahweh wanted to create a world where there was 8 billion people and all of these amazing things, I mean, he could have just, like, snapped his fingers and made it happen, but he doesn't. Like you said, he's starting with the basics. He's giving us an environment that he shapes and forms and fills, and then he puts us as his image bearers into the garden which is a whole other thing, but he's putting us in the garden and then saying, Hey, let's continue this creative activity. Let's continue this program that I've instituted. Yeah. I'm stopping from this specific work, but there's ongoing work to be done. Is that a fair way to think? Yeah, very much so. And that actually ties into the whole thing in chapter one, verses 26 to 28, the image and likeness of God, where, you know, he, he said, let us make man in our image that they may rule. It's mm. humankind. It's not just one man that he's talking about right. there. And and he's talking about that they may rule over the fish of the sea and so on and so forth. And he comes around to that twice in those verses. The point is that we're put here to follow up on what God has done. We're meant to be his vice regents. The terminology for image and likeness is really statute terminology. Mm, yeah, that's good. God has put us here as his statues, now we're living, you know, we're not just a dead rock. But yeah. the point is, he's put us here as the ones to represent him and to fulfill his wishes. It's like why a king would put up a statue in a certain place to represent who he is mm. and that he's the ruler. And in fact, we have one statue from the, about the time of David that actually uses the same terms as we have in Genesis 1 for the statue. Yeah, the Hadithi statue in Syria, right? Yeah, 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 that's right. And so we have this actually being used, and we know what the image and likeness is. It's primarily got to do with who we were created to be, yeah. how we were intended to live as God's vice regents hmm. in the world that he created, that he's given us to manage in a way that's pleasing to him. Which most of the time, people down through the ages have considered image of God in some sort of immaterial sense. 
like a reason or will mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. like that. When in reality, it, it, I, I do think that those things apply. I mean, it's not like God doesn't reason or have a will. But I think on if we're going to understand the image of God in its ancient Near Eastern context, I think at least on some basic foundational level, there's a corporeal sense to it. Like this is a physical yeah. representation that has real physical implications, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Which I think is something that really needs to get redeemed, I think. Yeah, I think that's really true. Now, of course, he gave us the capacities to do it. Well, of course. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, you know, yeah. all of that. And that's got to do with reason. It's got to do with all sorts of relational yeah. things. But it's a both and, also, not an either yeah, way. It, it's yeah. both and, but the primary image is of a statue yeah, it's good. that functions to represent authority. He made us as physical beings in the physical world to manage it physically as his representatives. Which has huge implications for what we do, how we treat the world. Oh, yeah. What we do as human beings, how we treat it one another, how we work. I mean, all kinds of social justice implications. Because at the end of the day, I think what you see, and we've already done a podcast on the book of Revelation, like Karen mentioned last week. But at the end of the day, what you see in Revelation is that the whole world is (laughs) the garden of God. And yeah, so we're, yeah. we're moving somewhere as opposed yeah. to, you know, some pagan way of thinking in the ancient world that would have been cyclical. That's just kind of spinning its wheels. It's not really going anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, yeah we're going this, someplace. Yeah. yeah, this is going somewhere. It's good. I yeah. think this has hopefully helped our audience see some of what we are talking about. Common mistakes when people read Genesis 1 through 11 is lacking context, Mm. lacking Mm -hmm. some of the background information leads us to wrong conclusions. And so even this discussion around what the image of God is, what it means, some of this background information helps us to rightly understand not only that text in Genesis 1, but through the end to all the way to Revelation, we can more rightly understand image of God. And so that was a common mistake that people make is not having the right background information or context uh, when reading it. Another one that we talked about was imposing the wrong questions on the text, yeah, like it's huge. trying to push questions that the author was not intending to answer. Are there any other major common mistakes that we should be aware of when reading Genesis 1 through 11? Well, th- yeah, there's so much. But quite frankly, it, it's important to say that the text in many, so many ways is just plain clear as it stands. It's not like we have to have all this in order to understand anything. That's just not true. The text is very clear on what it emphasizes and what it's going for, but sometimes it helps to bring things into relief. For example, they were coming out of Egypt, right? Who's the main god in Egypt? Well, Ray, the sun god. Mm. Well, when you have in Genesis 1 on the fourth day the creation of the big light and the little light for the day and the night— the sun god's really gotten demoted. He's not even a you know a real being. He's just the big light and the little light. You know you know this kind of thing. And so for them, that would speak a lot about who God is. For us, we we, we understand it. that, but it's important to understand that that would have been, in a very real sense, very polemical mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in the uh, world of the Israelites that. You know, don't think about it that way. Think about who I am. You know, I'm the creator. That's just a created thing that I did. Mm -hmm. You know, things like that. Yeah, and by polemic, you mean something that is using an existing story but reshaping it to make a point that kind of attacks that other story. 
Right. It's a way of pushing back on misunderstandings right. that could be there in the people. I mean, gum. Israel was in Egypt for 430 years. Yeah, so right. If we think that they're in Egypt for 430 years and are not influenced by the Egyptian creation stories, then <laughs> I don't know what I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't right, know what we're right. thinking. <laughs> yeah, right, so, I mean, right. I, and that's a, I think that's a huge deal, though, is we're already drawing on an oral tradition that would have been passed down through the Hebrews to Moses. But then you also have Moses who is probably at least on some level shaping the story to reorient the Hebrews toward a Yahwist frame of mind. Absolutely. And that's that's really important to understand. This is material that's meant to shape their world for them so that they see their world a certain way, they live in their world in a certain way. Yeah. So it's really got implications for how we do life. It's not just thinking about the past or origins or anything else. It's got to do with how do we now live. And that's really important to understand as what God is really trying to do in his scriptures anyway. You know, I think when properly understood, what's ironic, and maybe it's not so ironic, maybe it's just really clear and we just miss it, is that when properly understood, I think Genesis is just as powerful today and reorienting us to the proper biblical narrative than it was 3,500 years ago. Because you also see not just who is the deity, who is Yahweh, but you also see in Genesis, when compared to other creation stories, there is a markedly different character about who Yahweh is. He's not the type of deity who is arbitrary or vindictive or anything like that. Really what you see in Genesis is a creation that is an overflow of his love, um, which orients us to a deity that is love and not the type of God that so many of us create in our own minds. Yeah, he provides for us. But there's other things that, for example, in Genesis 3, the dynamics of the fall, the deception leading to doubt, leading to illegitimate desire, so on and so forth. If you look at the Genesis 3 story, what you can see is what the dynamics are of our fallenness. Mm, it's, good. it's not just a story about what happens, about what keeps on happening. Mm-hmm. We keep on replaying the fall in our own lives. And we can look at that story and it can open up even to our own selves. What's going on in us? Why are we the way we are? And how are we affected by one another, all of us being in that condition and so on? So it's it's very much core to laying the foundation for who we are as human beings, mm-hmm. created in God's image, but also fallen yeah. and corrupt, and all the, the ways that that has to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really helpful. It's not just pointing your finger saying, look at what Adam and Eve did, but it's holding up a mirror saying, look look at what I do. Yeah, currently. exactly. Yeah. Which is a really powerful apologetic to, right. the, yeah. to the validity yeah. of the story is this is not just some fairy tale that's made up that has nothing to do with reality. That actually, this is representative of reality on a a level that we have not plumbed the depths of. Yeah, I often talk about these stories being archetypal. Mm, That's good. I'm not talking about Jungian archetypes. I'm talking about archetypal in terms of the very nature of these stories is reflective of who we are. And that's true for everybody, ancients and moderns. There's so much in it that just is commonly human. Mm. That's intentional because God wants it to reach all humans of all times in all cultures. 
and it's it does. It really talks about the truth. Yeah, and it orients us to a God who's creative, a God who loves, a God who invites in, a God who is uh, sovereign, a God who is enthroned over his creation, yeah. a God who loves. Help us understand what difference this makes to us. Like, why is Genesis 1 through 11 so uh, necessary for the rest of it. You had mentioned, hey, it, it orients us to a God who is loving. And you had mentioned, hey, it it shows us our own ability and desire to sin. But really, it sets up the foundation for the rest of the story. It's our biblical narrative. Yeah. yeah, and so help us understand why this section of Scripture is so important. Well, one of the things that I would say is, even moving on to the end of chapter 4, uh, in Genesis, perhaps this is um, the most helpful thing I can say here. In the last verse of this unit, the unit runs, the generations unit runs from 2-4 through the end of chapter 4. And then in uh, chapter 4, verse 26, the last verse, to Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Now that expression, to call on the name of the Lord, runs from that verse all the way through the rest of the Bible. It's kind of like the answer to everything that happened in the fall. Mm. In other words, there's only one real answer to our condition and to our situation, and that's calling on the name of the Lord. And uh, this is really an important concept to, to think about. For example, in Genesis 12, then, Abram comes to Shechem, and moves on from there, and he's told this is the land that God is going to give him, that Abram came and he proceeded, this is chapter 12, verse 8, proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Mm -hmm. And so this expression keeps on coming. It comes up in the book of Joel when it talks about calling on the name of the Lord, and that's actually the passage that's cited by Peter in the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. He cites from the Joel passage, and he, when the part comes where it says, those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, uh, (laughs) that's where he jumps off on his sermon. He doesn't finish the passage. And you can go through this, and it keeps on coming in so many different passages. It really is, there's a sense in which In Genesis 1 through 4, we have the whole Bible Mm -hmm. because it kind of shows us what the whole shooting match is really all about. (laughs) And so even in Romans 10, part of this Romans Road discussion of salvation, you have in verse 13, whoever call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The the point is that this calling on the name of the Lord kind of opens up the rest of Scripture to what needs to happen now that we're in the condition we're in as Im- created in the image and likeness of God and still in that image, but also fallen and corrupt. And the sadness of that and what it means to repent and come back and turn to God, call upon him and make that my way of life. Mm. That is so helpful. So, so helpful to know that Genesis 1 through 11 tells us who God is, tells us who we are, tells us our broken condition, and it tells us what to do about our it. response. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so that yeah. sets up the rest of the narrative. And not to uh, give anything away, <laughs> but it also says that the serpent will strike his heel and this one will crush his head. 
the big word for that is the proto-euangelion or the first gospel. Yeah. And, uh, and you see Jesus come, and he's talking about day of the Lord type imagery, right? Mm-hmm. Of this fulfillment. And you yeah. see that you see with Peter's sermon at Pentecost, a hey, there's a new way of being that is this calling on the name of the Lord kind of life. Yeah. Which is ultimately exemplified and, and passed on to us through the atonement and resurrection. And there's a whole discussion that we can go through on that Genesis 3.15 passage. Yeah. <laughs> Very involved, but I, I really believe it is a proto-evangelium. Yeah. And yeah, that absolutely. it is looking forward to the ultimate seed. Totally. Uh, that is going to crush the head of the serpent. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're going to be back one more time. <laughs> we're going to watch how some people did call on the name of the Lord well and how others maybe didn't do it quite. Yeah, well, really, there's a bunch of cycles of people who follow the way of the serpent. So, dun, yeah. Dun, dun. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Dr. Averbeck. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Equipping Podcast. If you liked it, share with your friends, tell people, shout it from the rooftops. It's mm, a good idea. But as you're standing six feet away from people. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Bye. Peace. Oh, 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 oh,